Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. On the third day of Real Vision Crypto Holidays, we present to you Rao's mind-blowing interview with Arthur Hayes. Arthur is one of the most successful players in the space, and his insights into trading crypto and the crypto and macro nexus are second to none. So if you want to see how a master navigates the choppy waters of crypto and how a macro framework plays into that approach, this is the interview for you. So get that notepad out and that pen ready because you'll want to be taking notes so you're prepped for 2023. Enjoy and happy holidays from all of us here at Real Vision. The world of crypto is an incredibly exciting journey that we're all going on together. We don't know where it's leading to, but we know it's going to be absolutely massive. Join me, Ral Pal, as I guide you on our adventure to discover just what this new world will look like. Arthur Hayes, fantastic to see you back on Real Vision. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I love it. Listen, we've got a lot to talk about, but yeah. I think the main thing is you and I both have macro in our blood, and we kind of look at the world from that lens. So let's start with the question that we all want to talk about, which is what the fuck is going on? The, the macro is getting quite interesting. So give me, give me your take. What, what's your view right now on the macro setup? I mean, I guess it's this question of what, who's in charge, right? Is it the politicians or is it the bankers, right? And so I think in a lot of places, uh, I was just reading an email from one of the hedge fund managers that manages some of my money in this small fund, and he was just ticking down the different um, bass backwards decisions, like the BO, the BOE, right? So the government saying we want to spend more fiscally, and then the BOE is, okay, cool, we're going to stop doing quantitative tightening but then we're going to hike rates on the other side, right? So it's almost like they've all read this textbook that started in the 1930s that said, okay, don't be Benjamin Strong. You know, you know, you have to prevent the depression. So that's what they did since 2008 and every other crisis, provide liquidity when they need to because they don't want to have that happen. And then they've got this, oh my God, we want to be like Paul, you know, Paul Volcker if, if the inflation shows up. So we got to like, you know, get on this inflation thing, you know, real, real, real quick. And so there's not a lot of nuance in between of like trying to dissect what's different about today versus the seventies versus the thirties. I think that's, and that's the issue, right? You have a bunch of people who are saying, I've been trained my whole life to either provide money and asset deflation or hike in, in the face of inflation. And I don't want to be either of these two people that I read about as a, as a, as a student in university. Um, and then on the other side, you have politicians who need to get elected. And if, the if the uh, the poor members of society who have witnessed all these rich people get rich over the last thirty years by just buying financial assets, now are like, holy fuck, I can't afford to go to the pub because the pub can't afford its electricity bill because we got on this green bullshit uh, where we know fossil fuels are evil, so we're not going to invest in them. But now my energy bill's up eight x in the last year. To, like, do something, and I can, and, I, and then these are places where I can vote, and I can go out and say, you know what, well, fuck this, I'm voting myself money. And so I think you have this this clash here. I also may think the government always wins, 
um, and you will always provide the bread and circus for the people if, if it means losing your job. And so while these central banks right now are playing this game that they're going to raise rates and fight, fight inflation, at the end of the day, if the, if the government needs you know, wartime financing, financing for payments to the people, the central bank is going to fall in line and do what they're, do what they're told. Um, and I think that'll, that'll, that'll play over the next, you know, maybe months, quarters, years. But, you know, I think that's really the, the conundrum that we're at. And one thing that I think people don't realize is, you know, let's think about what happened in March 2020. We had this fear that the corporate bond market and the treasury market in the U.S. was seizing up. You had stocks crashing and treasury yields going wild. And what did the Fed do? It nationalized the corporate bond market in an afternoon. If the Fed was really serious about fighting inflation, they were calling extraordinary meetings, say, this is too much. We can't have this. Short-term rates are not 10%. Real rates are positive 2% overnight. They did it on the other side. Why don't they do it on this side? Because they actually don't care about inflating inflation. It's all window dressing politics. That's just my view. So there's a lot to unpack in this. Firstly, let's talk about inflation. The reason, I'm guessing the reason you think that they don't care about inflation is because of debt. Yes. Right? So they've got massive debt. So you inflate the debt away, whether it's through negative real rates or inflation, whichever way doesn't really matter. It's the same kind of thing. But- what the fuck do they do? I mean, if you're a central banker right now, <laughs> right? My view is the debt. Retire? Mint. Yeah, retire. <laughs> Don't be the guy who has to do it. <laughs> Just give it to the two-year bond market and say, you figure it out. Because the issue is, is like, with this much debt, you break the economy really fast. So can the, can the economy even have positive real rates for a period of time? So I look at the five-year break-evens and they're, you know, the move has been gigantic now and it feels like everything's going to break. I mean, what do they do? How do they deal with this inflation? Does it last? Can you have inflation in a big debt-driven society? How are you thinking through it? Well, I think at the end of the day, it's all energy related. Um, I was listening to a recent Felix Zuloff third quarter presentation and he put up a really interesting, amazing chart. And it's based, I think it was from like, I don't know, the 17th or 18th century up until today. And it basically showed um, fossil fuel and energy usage. And you see this big, it's like basically flat line for the last 400 years. And then the last 100 years, you see the graph go like this when we discovered fossil fuels. And I don't know, is it, I think oil is what, 100 or 200 times more energy dense than wood, right? That is our modern existence. That's all we have. We are here today talking on this computer screen. You know, we get to do desk jockey, you know, our jobs are just, you know, pontificating on Twitter and, and video chat and not sitting out in the farm because we have this thing called oil, natural gas, coal, and maybe a little bit of nuclear. That's it. And so, okay, if, if the central bank is going to tell me that we're about to either A, commercialize nuclear energy to such an extent that there's going to be a little nuclear reactor in your car powering energy at much cheaper rates than oil, and we're, we're going to phase that all out and everything's going to be nuclear powered, then show me the energy source that's 100 times more energy efficient than hydrocarbons. And then I'll show you the way that we get out of this debt, because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. We take the potential energy of the sun and the earth, we convert it into economic activity. And so if you're telling, unless you're telling me we're going to somehow recreate what's happened in the last hundred years with some sort of new magical discovery of energy efficiency, then there literally is nothing they can do unless the population goes you know, through the roof to justify all this debt and all this build out of stuff. So wh when you say energy is inflation, 
the energy markets are not really inflating right now. So do you think it's a, we've got a structural problem still? I mean, we all understand the shift is going to happen. It's not as dense. It's going to take time before you can figure out. And, you know, everyone's like, it's nuclear, obviously. And the politicians are like, la, 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 we can't hear you. <laughs> like, really? And yes, you know, humans will figure it out. But energy itself... I, I get concerned because everybody in the energy market is a su- supply sider and they never look at demand. And I'm looking at demand. It's like it's falling off a cliff, guys. How's the oil price going to go up? But I mean, that's not, that's not my point. My point is that you have to pay back the debt. Either we get more efficient in producing something that just, that is the reason why we took this debt today, right? We tomorrow there's all this other stuff. We right, got it. Get cheaper than what it costs us for the debt that we took on because we borrowed from the future. So either it's there's more humans that do more stuff. Therefore, we needed to build out more stuff today because of, you know, in 20 years, we have all those adults. Or we're going to be more energy efficient in the future. Therefore, it's not going to cost us as much from an economic point of view for all this debt. And that's the issue, right? We have all, we have, I don't know, highest debt load in was it 350 times GDP. Uh, 350% of GDP is like global debt. Okay, show me the economic activity and the efficiency gains that justifies us pulling forward all that demand to build stuff today. And it's either we have more people or we're more energy efficient. The issue is, is we financialized most of it. So we didn't actually create anything with the debt. It's not like we did what right. China did. At least China built factories and railroad stuff. stuff, right? We've done nothing except bought a bunch of restaurant meals and put it on our credit cards. It's one of those problems. There's only two solutions. You know, it's interesting because I was looking at Amazon and they employ one and a half million people, and yet they've just employed, over the last five years, half a million robots in the factories, uh, in the warehouses. Those robots are three times as efficient just in man hours, let alone the actual efficiency of a robot versus a human. So it seems like it's writ large, right? The answer is going to be technology. So you can squeeze more productivity. That's your hope. That's, that's the hope. That's the only thing you can hope put your hat on. Like, okay, well, I'm going to put my head in the sand and the, the technology is going to get better to make us so much more efficient that this debt is worth it. Otherwise, we inflate it away. That's the only other option. Yeah. The question is, is uh, my view on that is, yes, technology helps, but B, it also means that humans aren't really valuable. So that doesn't help a great deal for society. <laughs> and the other way is, what way do you want to run it? Do you want to run it with inflation where asset prices go down and optically it feels bad? Or do you do it the, the cheeky way, which is to run negative real rates and asset prices go up, even though nobody actually gets richer? And my guess is they'll probably try and do that if they can. I mean, I think it was Lacey Hunt that says and the government never, ever voluntarily goes bankrupt. So if you have the power to print money in your own currency and buy energy and buy stuff why would you ever say you know what i'm going to take the hard road and come and explain to the people why i'm going to crash the economy in objectively real terms today because of all these decisions that were made 20 30 years ago versus hey it's all gonna be great here's this check go buy your gas <laughs> tell me which politician wins <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty it's pretty easy so what do you think where do you think we are in the recession story how big how bad Unemployment rises. What are you thinking? I mean, I guess it maybe isn't really myopic. I don't really look at that that much, and it's only just a lever to like, okay, when are they going to turn the tabs back on? Right? That's What's the political right. instability that's going to so take true. it for them <laughs> to turn the tabs back on? 
right? Because that's that's all. I mean, I know we all care about people and the fact that people don't have jobs and there's a lot of people starving and blah blah blah. But as financial market, you know, analysts, what why do we care about these economics? Okay, what is it that Biden or um, the politicians in, in Western Europe or Xi in China? What what is it that's going to be so bad for them politically that they say, okay, you know, central bank, quit the fucking money. I'm going to hand out the checks. What's what's the variable? I don't know what it is. We'll see. We'll, we'll know when we see it, right? In March 2020, it was a corporate bond market. In 2008, it was mortgages. In China now, it's the property market. You know, they said, oh, we're going to rein in speculation on property. It's basically collapsing their economy. Actually, no, hold on a second. Uh, every central government, local governments start buying that property. We don't want it to go down, actually, right? So everybody... We all know what the answer is, what we want to do, but then when we're faced with paying the political and economic cost for the decisions made decades ago, nobody wants to take that on their books. And so we kick the can again. So you don't believe the narrative that the Fed have changed and they're never going back to that again. They're reformed alcoholics and they're now only drinking, you know, LaCroix. It's literally all it is is an act of Congress. Well, I don't know that it was an act of Congress when the Fed and the Treasury emerged and was it 1946 to 1951 or whatever the period was of the war, right? And so the whole Fed independence went out the window because it was expedient to finance the U.S.'s entry into the war. And the same is for, true for every other country. And so the independence of whatever central bank will be subsumed by the political necessities if it gets bad enough. And so we as market people are like, okay, what's that variable – what do I see six months before they actually do it so that I can get in and, and buy the stuff they know they're going to buy? That's what we're playing. That's the game we're playing. That is the game. The game is forward-looking. I think the market's more forward-looking than people think um, because they know that the cowbell is coming. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of, okay, when do I buy this? Because they're just going to devalue the denominator yet again. Yeah, so the question is how much pain. And if you were levered coming into this, then – Obviously, you're not able to participate in that patient game of waiting for the signal to happen. How far away do you think we are from that macro turn? I mean, I'm, I think growth falls off a cliff kind of shockingly, and the central bank starts to get a bit nervous, I think sooner than the market expects. The bond market feels like it's gone unhinged right now. Liquidity's dried up. When do you think this macro turn comes? I think it's going to have to be something structural and like the financial plumbing of the pipes that the Fed cares about for them to to take the about face and Powell, whoever's in charge, to go in front of uh, the podium and say, actually, we're switching back to QE, right? And so it was corporate bonds, it was repos, it was, you know, all these different things. So I think now it's a treasury market, right? As a bunch of different strategies have pointed out, you know, dealer's inventory has gone down, bid ask spreads have widened, volatility has gone up. And you have the Fed selling, the Treasury selling, the Chinese selling, the Japanese selling, the U.S. commercial banks all selling bonds. Who the fuck's buying these bonds at even the 10, what, 10 years of 3.7% today? Inflation at 8? Okay, fine. On a nominal basis, it's nice to earn some more money on my fiat that's sitting in my brokerage account. But like, am I right buying these bonds? And yeah, I'm going to hold this thing for 10 years and lose 4% real terms. No way. So who is stepping up and buying the trillions of dollars worth of bonds that need to happen in the Jewish treasury market just to use the normal government functioning of today and not to say that there's some military or you know other conflict that requires higher deficit spending or promises made by politicians in an election year, right? So I think the structural part of the treasury, we have identified it. We know there's a problem. We know the problem is removal of liquidity. However, we haven't seen the effect yet. 
And so once we see the effect, they'll all scramble. Oh, okay, we're going to fix the treasury market. And then it's game on. Feels the same also in the currency market. It's like it's a one-way street. The dollar's going up. Everybody's short dollars. The game of musical chairs is playing out and the chairs are getting pulled away. (laughs) And, you know, the Japanese were the first to fold today. It's like, we need to do something about this. But I'm waiting also for that other announcement, the other classic announcement happens in a crisis, which is the Fed are extending swap lines. Because that kind of has to happen as well. I think that's more of a political question. And I've written about this, like, it's the EU and, and Japan, right? They both are energy importers. They both said we're not going to take Russian energy. Therefore, who's supplying them? The United States. Okay, great for the United States. What does the United States sell it in? Dollars. What's going up a lot? The dollar. What's going down a lot? The euro and the yen. So, like, you you have this wartime policy to support your ally, but you got to buy the shit from them, too. And they're just saying, you know, fuck you. We're going to keep the dollar going up and up and up because, you know, we got to fight inflation, right? So, which one is it going to be? Yeah, and also... These nations, so China, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Germany, are the five largest finished goods manufacturers on earth. So the US is sucking in all the disinflation from these guys as well. So it kind of suits the Fed right now. Yeah. I mean, it's great. I mean, America, I mean, yes, I'm sure people are losing their jobs and whatnot. But if you believe the statistics, it's not too bad. So they can continue doing this unless there is some overriding international foreign policy objective that says, you know what? We can't let the dollar keep going higher because we kind of need to support our boys. Let's switch into crypto because one thing that you always explained and most people didn't get was that macro and crypto are the same thing. Yes, there's an adoption trend that goes on in the background, but the big swings are all driven by the macro. My little mental model is Bitcoin is essentially US dollar liquidity plus technology, right? Um, The technology piece is the technology under underpinning a decentralized network that allows value to be transferred in a censorship resistant way. And we've, you know, a little bit longer than a decade of being able to do this um, very, very well. However, that's not a very sexy thing. And it's very hard to, hard to evaluate, like who really needs one of these things. My, my bank account works fine. My credit card, my Amex works fine. And most developed places. So like, do I really need this like Bitcoin thing? We're talking like the, the mass adoption. Obviously, you crypto people have a different view of this. So there's zero value to that technology. That technology is infinitely valuable if you were a Russian oligarch who suddenly found out that their dollars are no longer theirs anymore. Then they're like, oh shit, now I get this Bitcoin thing. I didn't actually own any of those assets. I was just borrowing them from the bank or the government. And they let me use them at their at their discretion. And obviously, because of my passport, now I'm no longer welcome. And so therefore, all these assets, no longer. But Bitcoin doesn't work that way. So that's the technology piece. And it's sort of a it's a, it's a binary outcome. Either you get it or you don't. And if you don't, you don't see why anyone would pay anything for that. And so you ascribe it as zero value. And that's the majority of people. So then you're just left with liquidity conditions because Bitcoin is a reaction against the profligacy of central banks um, and the dollar-based system that we're in. And so we're just going to joke and jive with the dollar and how and how it trades and how much dollars there are, how cheap they are, and you know, remove like they are today, then Bitcoin gets smoked. Um, but then slowly and slowly, as we sort of balkanize the world into this like US NATO versus Russia, China, uh, Eurasia type situation, more and more people find out that what they thought they owned, they don't. And therefore, they understand why people in Bitcoin are so, mar- they marvel at this technological feat that's been created. And this, therefore, okay, that technology is kind of worth something. I kind of wish I had 
to Bitcoin. Even if it, even if I bought it at sixty nine thousand and it's worth you know eighteen now, that's better than having you know a ten million dollar house that's now fucking zero, right? So <laughs> <laughs> take your pick. Yeah, I mean, I that's how I got into Bitcoin originally was when I was living in Europe and the Cyprus, you know, the European banking crisis two thousand twelve. And they just took people's money out of the Cypriot banks, a bank bail-in. No, it was theft of savers' money. And it was that moment I thought, holy shit, nobody owns anything. And that's what got me into Bitcoin 2013 was that very thing. And the Russian situation is exactly that. But it happened at central bank reserve level as well. It's like, oh, those aren't your dollars anymore. You know, it's an, extra, it's an extraordinary change. So how does Ethereum then fit into your framework? So Ethereum is, to me, the, the centralized computer, and it's the most successful one uh, so far. Obviously, there's other chains that are trying to do the same thing. And I think the DeFi moment is basically allowing the world to own the financial services that they that they use, right, in a you know, longer tail future, right? You can't really own the bank that you use in, in any meaningful way. Um, you can't really own the exchange that you're trading a lot of the, the things that you're trading on. You can't really own Sotheby's and Christie's where you trade, you know, the highbrow art or, you know, can't really own YouTube. Like, so you, all these different services that we use are all, you know, very tightly owned for financial asset holders, which is what the top riches 10 to 1% of the world versus now we have this ecosystem where anyone can create a service and confer ownership by using it. And these tokens have value because they they allow you to govern how these things work. Now, obviously, we're very early stages of that, and there's a lot of things to work through. But I think Ethereum powers that, and that's why it's so powerful. Is the services that it's going to enable for the mass of the world to own the services that they currently use today, but they have no say in them. They can't own them, and so that, I think that's the promise. Yeah, everything's extractive, and this is accretive. So if you join a platform. You join a service that's successful and you own a token, you share in the success of the of the thing, you know? If we were all Facebook shareholders, we'd yeah. have done really well. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so so that's Ethereum. So then I'm going to come back to Ethereum about yield in a minute. But So then what's your mental model about the rest of the space? So Ethereum's more decentralized, slower, more expensive. How does the rest of the space fill in the gaps and how, how do you see that evolution of the layer ones, layer twos, that kind of thing? Yeah, so you have all the other layer ones and they all said, okay, it's like this very successful tech startup that the tech fell over a bit. So then the other ones go, yeah, we're faster. We can do it better. Give us some money too. And so that happened. And a lot of them did very well in the last cycle. Most of them have, don't really have that much actual usage as we're finding out today. Um, and so they all crashed, just like Ethereum crashed in its first iteration. And so the question now is, okay, well, you guys have this advertised very, very fast, you know, transaction speed, great. Show me the applications that are used by at least some people doing stuff. And so that's the question right now. It's like you have to have users that are willing to spend real money and not just receive inflated tokens. And so I think that's the question that all the, you know, investors and me as well are just looking at, you know, new projects of like, okay, well, show me the user. Show me somebody willing to pay real money to use your service. And I think that's the that's where we're at right now. Whether or not any of these other L1s are going to be able to gain market share, I think it's going to be very tough unless they get a lot of developers. Because Ethereum, by and large, has what, greater than 90% of all, so if you want to call it, DeFi, DAP developers. How do I break through as an L1 to get 
the random developers, okay, I need to get into Web3. So then they have to choose, okay, which, what am I going to learn? Because I only have so many hours in a day. Do I learn Solidity? Do I learn Rust? Do I learn OCaml? Do I learn what, what fucking language do I learn, right? And so if you're not able to sell yourself to that developer, then they're going to go, okay, I know the Ethereum, they have the most people, they have the most usage. Okay, I'll go develop over there. It doesn't even matter if it's faster or slower or whatever, but as a developer, I want to develop for my thing to be used. As I'm going to go to the place where I think there's the most users. And that's the challenge for any of these L1s. Not to say that they can't do very, very well in a price perspective, you know, going up, up off of a bottom, I think. But in a law, as a longer term, true challenger to Ethereum, that's the conundrum they're going to have to solve. Yeah, because I only see a few chains with real Metcalf's Law adoption effects, and they're still early. You know, Solana has a lot of activity. Okay, but a lot of it was driven by Steppen and stuff like that. So it's not cl- it's not clean. We, d- we just don't know yet, as you say. While Ethereum is pretty proven at this point, if you're looking through the probabilities of some of these smaller tokens, you know, because we all want to be a DGEN as well and find the next 100x, how do you filter through that? What are you looking at that's going to give you an idea of, okay, look, this is worth the punt versus, you know, sure, your core position might be big on Ethereum, but you're looking for a punt, you're looking for the tail. How do you filter through some of that? I I mean, I guess you use survivorship bias, right? Okay, if I'm looking at, a top 20 market cap asset and it's, not, it's down 95%, okay, will it survive to the next cycle? Will it survive the next two years? How much money did they raise, right? If the answer is yes, buy it, right? Worst case, you know, goes down to zero. Best case goes up with 10x, 20x, right? Just from going from, you know, if it went from 100 to 1 and it goes from 1 to 10, I made a 10x. Still isn't anywhere near where it was, but... I'm just playing the rebound, right? And so you know that on the rebound of, of crypto, when you know when the next cycle begins, any everything that fell the most is going to rise the most just by the you know the path dependency of how returns work. And so yeah, just throw some change in a bunch of these things. Most of them will fail. You don't really care. It's really just a, a numbers game. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, exactly right. So let's talk a little bit about. Yield, because you were one of the people to write a lot about this, and I've written a lot about this, is I think I still think the market is underestimating what having a benchmark yield rate is from Ethereum, because we've kind of established it's like, okay, this is the, the, the kind of value protocol for the internet right now, right? So there's no real challenger for that. Bitcoin has no yield. It's It's not what Ethereum is. So here's a benchmark rate. You and I know everything in the world, in the real world, in the physical world, is priced treasuries or LIBOR plus, right? I'm kind of thinking this is a huge breakthrough because we can price everything as Ethereum plus or Ethereum minus so we can understand risk better because we just learned three months ago that nobody <laughs> understands fucking risk yet again, right? <laughs> So that's that's how I'm thinking. How, how are you thinking this yield plays out? Because I think this leads to another explosion in DeFi, meaning positive explosion, because we've now got something to get our teeth into, which is a yield that makes sense. So I think there's so the, on the one hand, I think it you know solved the question. Oh, crypto doesn't yield anything. It does. 
here's a yield. Now, the other detraction is, well, at 4% or 5%, it's basically just at treasuries, right? So you're not really going to, if, if the interest rates are high in the TradFi world, you're not really going to see the, you know, the hedge fund manager be like, okay, I, you know, treasuries at zero, Ethereum's at 4%, so maybe I should structure some trading in the ETH. I don't think that's that's the play anymore. Maybe that was a thinking, you know, six, seven months ago, back before this this happened. Fine. But what I really think that the ETH yield does is it acts as a um, quality control mechanism. If you're going to come in as a project and say, I'm going to build this amazing future, I have a discount right now. Before it was zero. So like you could tell me all sorts of bullshit and it doesn't matter because you're just a long duration asset, yield zero, cool, whatever. If not negative, right? Because Ether, the supply, it keeps going up. But now you're telling me, okay, I'm going to build an ERC-20 asset and my discount rate's 4%. Okay, and I'm going to get a lot different. My my response to your valuation, the ability for you to generate users, really changes. Um, if the, is a user really going to take the risk of getting rug pulled on staking your coin when they could literally just buy ETH and earn four percent, five percent in a staking derivative? So I think yes, it's going to lead to good things, but it's also going to mean a lot of shitty projects are not going to be able to raise the kind of money that they used to be able to raise because now there's something to compare it against, like a real thing, like income that. If you're already going to do ERC-20 stuff, well, it better yield at least 4% a year, right? And I think that that's going to be that's gonna be good for investors, right? It's going to be good to filter out things that were obviously never going to work. Um, but, you know, you had to, like, play around with it first to, to figure that out versus, okay, I can get this thing in a more attractive valuation because these guys know that there's a hurdle right now. There's some competition. And I also think, you know, much like we look at emerging market yields, um, we need to look at kind of vol-adjusted returns of the currency underlying and adjust the yield accordingly. Because, you know, if you're going to hold the Brazilian real, it's a volatile currency and you want a high yield for that. Uh, if you want to hold the US dollar, you can accept a lower yield or, or the euro for that matter. And I think we need to get to that as well, where we can start kind of vol-adjusting, checking the yield and saying, you know, there's excess return here or there isn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I don't think in and of itself, because treasuries are now, you know, 4% at some points of the curve that just ETH having a 4% yield is this massive thing now because I can make that easily in other areas. Yeah, but it does also mean, you know, for example, institutions never bought gold, really. Even though the gold people wanted them always to buy it, they never did, right? Because it had no yield. And they're like, we've got pension liabilities to fund and this doesn't help us because if it doesn't go up for five years, we don't get anything. So... Right now, they were all looking at Bitcoin. That was the route of entry. Now, if you're a big pension plan, Ethereum, you can do that. Sure, you don't get excess returns right now versus treasuries, but at least you've got a yield. So you get the access to the technology, as you said, but with a yield. I mean, it kind of, you know, if your mental model of Bitcoin was technology plus liquidity, you've got technology plus liquidity and yield compensation, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, I think it's going to be great, and it's going to start the real, the real types of DeFi fixed income products that we need to see. Not, hey, let me go lend money at three euros in Celsius and blow up, and have, because they have bad risk management. That was the yield that we had, like that. That was our our iteration of like fixed income in crypto, right? But now we get to have a real on chain, native to the protocol fixed income, and I'm just really excited for the types of products that people are going to come up with to sort of take that yield and move it around and you know take the risks and share them around the ecosystem. It's going to be really interesting to see the different types of protocols that are now going to be enabled and be um, 
popularized because we have this staking yield of ETH. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've been looking at is the old game we used to all play in equity derivatives was guaranteed funds. Because now you've got a yield, you can own ETH and you can buy puts. And so right. therefore, you've got a limited downside. You know, all of those structured, pro- the simple structured products are all available now, which weren't available before and it's impossible to do in Bitcoin, for example. Yeah. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be great. And obviously, the price of ETH isn't reflecting this right now because we have you know, overriding liquidity concerns. But um, I do think, assuming that the upgrade, you know, continues to go well, you have these interesting things that are going to create new businesses for the entire ecosystem, which might not be completely apparent today. Or might, and it might not. It might take six to twelve months for people to really, oh, okay, now I get it. There are these new primitives that are completely. They, they owe their existence to the fact that there is this yield that I can count on if I stake my ETH. Where do you think we are in the crypto cycle? Obviously, it's related to the macro cycle, but it should be more forward looking. Are you of the opinion now, you know, you're a trader, you can change your mind. I have no issue with that. Yeah. Do you do you think the kind of the lows are in, mainly in? How are you what's what's your kind of structural bias now? I think we're chopping around the bottom. Do we hold seventeen thousand five hundred on Bitcoin? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, do I think it goes much lower than that if it does break? Probably not. My 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 whole thing is like, okay, who's selling physical? We had a classic, you know, credit crunch. Just like every other asset class, I could have, it could be in Asia in 1998, I could have been in Mexico in 94, I could have been in Argentina, it's all the same. Um, similar sort of behavior, um, tide went out, everybody went bankrupt, uh, and you had forced selling. And, you know, I, I monitor some of the, like Ave Compound, MakerDAO, like all the, the DeFi protocols that have like forced liquidations. And you're seeing most of that curve was in the 1,000 to 2,000 bucket. And after you know mid June of this year, it's shifted down to the seven six five hundred dollar bucket. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't. And then you think about, okay, who's gone bankrupt? The largest, most well revered hedge funds, startups, you know, personalities have all got had their you know comeuppance and you know had some sort of financial difficulties. So the only people left who I think could sell in size are the miners. And then you have to wonder, okay, well, wouldn't they have had to sell in size in mid-June when the price was even lower than they are today? When people were pulling credit, um, nobody could get credit. Now things have kind of stabilized a bit. You know who's fucked and who's not. So my view is that I'm trying to think of like a, a cohort that didn't have to sell a month and a half ago, two months ago, who now needs to sell today because we're back at the same level. And I just don't see that sort of intensity, which leads me to believe that we're just chopping around chopping around the bottom we might not be here for a while we might be here for a while that just doesn't mean that we're going up anytime soon but i just don't know who else is has a has you know democracy sword over their head who has to sell today yeah the only people i've seen are eth miners because they don't have a job anymore (laughs) and so they've been they've been selling eth which kind of makes sense as they close up shop or move to different protocols or do whatever and you know that makes sense after the merge that's what they're going to do so yeah, I don't see it either. I don't see the sellers, but you know, I speak to a lot of institutional investors, and they're everybody's doing the work. You know, everybody wants to be involved, but you know what people are like—they can never, ever buy lows. They can't well, do I, it. They have to buy I, FOMO. I, they just can't do it. You can't fault them too much. You know, the reason why they're beta chasing muppets, as they like to call them, uh, institutional, <laughs> institutional investors, is like it's an incentive program, right? And I used to be somebody who sold them financial products as a you know sell side banker, right? I get it, right? We all went to the same 25, 50 schools. 
we all wear the same costume to work every day and you make a few hundred grand and you basically know how to do basic Excel and you have a great job and you very quickly realize that nobody else and no other business in the world would pay you that kind of money to do the little amount of intellectual work that you do. And so you're like, why do I, what am I going to do? I need to keep this job. This is a great job. You know, you know, I get social standing, I can go out to a nice restaurant, blah, 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 get to travel and go on vacation. And I sit in a chair all day. Right. And so do you really want to risk your job buying crypto for what? Is it, you're going to, is your AUM all, all of a sudden going to like quadruple this year to get you a big bonus because you bought the bottom in Bitcoin? But what if you didn't? And Bitcoin went from 17,500 to 10,000. You lose your job. And so like, this makes zero sense for them to buy crypto because the one or 2% of their allocation that they may be allowed to buy crypto, if they go and they go long and they, and they lose a bunch of money, whereas everybody else just stayed out of the market, you, you lose your job. And then you got to find a. Then you got to find real work that you know requires you know much higher level of uh, training and intellect than you know being an asset manager. And so I think that is the reason why institutional investors will never ever buy the bottom in crypto. They can buy the bottoms in stocks and whatnot because the whole system owns stocks. The TradFi system doesn't own crypto. It's not their thing. They're coming into it as a newbie, so it's risky for them. Yeah. So that gives it enormous convexity when it does start moving, right? Yeah, because they'll be the guys, they'll be the peers by 65,000. So they'll be, you know, November, hey, hey, here, hedge fund manager, I want to make, you know, 20% with, you know, infinite sharp ratio. What are you doing? Oh, this thing called Terry Luna. Oh, yeah, here, here you go. Here you go. Boom, boom. Throw the money in. Throw the money in. Right? It's the same thing. It'll happen over again. They'll be buying the highs. Market will collapse again. And then we'll be like, oh, we're the institutional investors. And we'll have this conversation over and over and over again. Every time we hear about it. I kind of think that, you know, from my conversations with so many people, that they're all primed now. There's a lot of people primed. So there's a lot of capital on the sidelines waiting for this price turn because they don't want to lose their jobs. So they want to use the Arthur Hayes method, which is, okay, on the way up, you can get involved, which makes me think that when it does change, when we get the macro turn, it goes up pretty sharply because of this, this very issue of a lot of people who've done the work They've got their custody agreements. They've set up with Fireblocks and Anchorage and you know, or with Coinbase, whatever. They, they're ready to go, uh, and they pull the trigger. Eventually, there will be the bozos who buy the high, whatever that high is, because yeah. that is markets, right? I, yeah. I bought the ETH calls high. That's fine. I can live with that. <laughs> I was that bozo. <laughs> so what do you get excited about in the space now? Outside of the kind of markets stuff, what do you look at and think, this is really exciting. This is really interesting. I wouldn't say it's a protocol per se. I think it's just an attitude uh, and, the, and the types of people that just come into the space, right? And the conviction of people who get involved. I think that's what excites me is that you're you're in this movement. It's still quite small, still a bit of an echo chamber, but people are like fucking love it. And, you know, the tribalism, the intense pathos on, on the various you know, social media platforms from the different tribes fighting each other. That's very religious. Um, it's it's humanity, and, and that's what we're missing from from financial markets in, in general, sure. right? Like, I used to work on a training floor at a trade stock. It's it got really really boring, like quite quickly um, after after the crisis because all the fun was taken away. Right? It wasn't 1980s or 1970s. Like you read all these finance books about you know all the you know masters of the universe today like discovering these new ways to price an option and creating these new derivatives to like bring more liquidity to the mortgage-backed securities markets like all the people in charge of all the banks today 
that was their crypto moment, right? Where they got to create something new, where they got to, you know, debate, you know, what is this worth? Like, how do I create a formula or a mental model for this new financial product and this new way of doing business? And, you know, Stratify today is like, well, let me tick this box, tick that box. Here's a VWAP over the day order. And that's your job. Um, and so I think that's intensely boring. And that's why I think crypto is so amazing because we're creating something new. People have different ideas. Some may have some work, some don't. Um, there's all this emotion. There's got this religious aspect of like, what is money? And like, we're literally creating the money for humanity and the whole world. And how do we get as many people involved as quickly as possible? And so I think that's what makes this interesting and continues to be. And the people that I meet are extremely intelligent and, you know, they all have this vision of what they want to create and this blank slate. And here's this technology that's letting them express themselves. Yeah, I, I find it's optimistic. It's super intelligent. The people are optimists, super intelligent optimists. Generally, super intelligent people tend to be pessimists, but they're super intelligent optimists that also have this slightly wild side to them. And they've got relentless energy. And it's just a joy to be around. It just feels different. And the whole thing has turned into a culture in itself. And, you know, it's like discovering a new band or something like that. When you <laughs> discover a new culture, it's like, I love this. I feel at home here. And it's amazing how hard everybody works because of this energy. Right? Everyone just has a smile on their faces. Even when the market's puking, everyone's yeah. posting memes and buying yeah. Rex Guy NFTs. It's yeah. great. <laughs> but I have to say, like, if, I, if I think about a segment of the market that I think is completely misunderstood, and I think it's NFTs. And I'm going to give a presentation on this at the Coinbase Ideas Conference in a few weeks, that it's probably the best, my favorite trade of the moment is not the NFTs themselves, but sort of the platforms that enable this trading. Because at the end of the day, what NFTs are is it's just a piece of technology. And what I think the, the media tries to portray is, oh, it's just a bunch of young kids trading worthless fucking JPEG. If you control C, control B. As you can see, my board ape behind me. Right. That's my NFTs, right. yeah. Yeah, you don't, you don't need to. You don't. You didn't need to buy that on whatever platform you bought it on to actually display that. You could have just taken the image and put it on there. Cool. But and and but I think that's not the point. NFTs is just a technology that allows us to trade human culture, and human culture is, you know, it's the reason why we get up every day, right? Why do you work your? Everybody consumes culture, whether that's a nice restaurant, it's your favorite musician, it's a sporting event, um, it's art on the wall. It's, you know, your favorite glass of wine. Like these are all artistic pursuits and we've created this whole society and we, you know, we work really hard and all the excess goes to arts in various shapes and forms. And here's this technology that's going to allow us to trade that on a market um, and pass ownership between each other in, in a scarce way, in a, you know, a digitally, in a, fidelity, in a way that has fidelity digitally across the world. Anyone can trade it. That is a massive opportunity. And I think it's great now that the traditional financial media just think it's a dumb, bunch of dumb kids trading at JPEGs. Fine. I, I just want to own anything that's related to how you trade these things all day, every day, because that to me is, it's the reason why we, we are human is art and, and, you know, consuming the art of others. Yeah. And we talked about the rise of the robots and AI. It, this it's art and culture that gives us any meaning in that kind of world, right? In a, in a world where you're competing with a job, with a robot, you want to have art and culture because it's the only human pursuits that we have. Yeah, I mean, I think also, I look at this and I think culture has become an asset class. 
it was an asset class if you were Bernard Arnault because you could build right. Louis Vuitton, right? But for the rest of us, it wasn't very easy. But now we can participate in culture as an asset class. And I think it was McKinsey who said there's $60 trillion of intangibles on global balance sheets. And that's brand, culture, those kind of things. And I think it's all going to get tokenized. Now, how much of that? But a big amount of that gets tokenized because it shares it with the community and you know the powerful behavioral economics behind it all. I even set up a whole business based around this whole idea, which is that culture becomes an asset class. And I could see it everywhere. Everybody I talk to, every fashion brand, every music artist, anybody, every physical artist, anybody, they're all like laser focused. Every movie studio. I mean, what is the value of Disney? It's a $250 billion company. But the value of the culture of Disney and the brand, probably a trillion, two trillion, who knows? Probably the single most valuable brand on earth. But the market doesn't price it that way. But the moment they tokenize it, it will. One thing that I'm super excited about is just how people express themselves using this new tech. So your play in that is the platforms themselves. Yeah, the the platforms that are DeFi, not not that are have tokens which you can buy, right? So, you know, you can't buy a share of OpenSea unless you were were they in one of the US VC accelerators and you know all the big names have some of them. And if you look at you know, not to do a plug here because I, I just like the service. Uh, token terminal, I pull it up every other day and I, I click on the uh, the DAP section and I go seven day revenue. Who who which applications are generating the most revenue from people willing to spend real money? Real money is Ether, USDC, or USDT or one of these um, currencies on their service. Number one is OpenSea, just about every day. Number three, four, five is looks rare. It's the you know competitor that uh, is basically token funded versus you know equity funded. Then there's X2Y2, another platform. There's Magic Eden, the OpenSea equivalent on Solana. So these four platforms account for us like top ten revenue generators every single day, and the market's down ninety fucking percent in terms of flows from the highs in in August of uh, of last year. So tell me that this is a new asset class. It's you know just a dumb bunch of dumb kids trading JPEG. This generates just about the most activity on the decentralized computer that all of us older people think is, you know, a relevant pursuit is people slinging JPEGs. So that to me tells all I need to know about where this is going. Yeah, we've even got a a uh, internal Slack channel here at Real Vision, which is called fucking DGENs. And <laughs> there's a whole bunch, a half the bloody firm is still in this bear market flipping NFTs, losing a fortune and having a ball doing it. And there's something in that, right? NFT volumes, yeah, they've come down, but people are still active in a way they're not so active in the protocol go token ecosystem. It's it's amazing to see. So which one of these have tokens? What's tradable? I think looks rare is tradable. Uh, X2Y2 is tradable. I'm not sure about Magic Eden. Uh, and I'm sure there's a few others that are out there. Uh, another, I'm not trying to plug them. I don't own any equity in them. Dune Analytics. If you go on Dune, search NFTs, they'll have like, you know, leaderboards of like who's doing volume um, every day. Now, obviously, there's the whole, you know, issues with is it just people flipping, washing between wallets and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like if that's going to dissuade you from this like longer term vision, then you don't need to be in that trade anyways. So just, you know, exit <laughs> stage left and put your money somewhere else. And these things are all down 95%, I guess, these yeah. tokens. Massive. 
they you know they issued uh, whatever they issued at market caps are down you know seventy to ninety five percent. It's a fascinating time in crypto when everything's down this much, and all of us have been around it a few times before. You can find the rubies in the dust in this stuff, and if the moment the macro turns to bring us back to the beginning of our conversation, the moment we get that turn and the central banks or the market sniff that the central banks and the governments are going to do something, it gets really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Arthur, listen, fantastic to talk to you. Been wanting to do this for a while, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We did a lot of swearing as well, which is good. <laughs> I love it. It's a great time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Good to catch up with you.